This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to a fatal mid-air float plane crash in Alaska. Involving tourists on a cruise from Vancouver. Six people are now confirmed killed. Two of them, Elsa and Ryan Wilk, a couple from the Lower Mainland. CTV Vancouver videographer Pete Klein and reporter Allison Hurst packed their bags to report from the ground. We just left a briefing from the NTSB and found a tiny tourism-oriented community in shock. Hundreds of people gather for a vigil and prayers outside the hospital in Ketchikan, Alaska. It's a tragedy for everybody involved, the community, the, the visitors. We were out there yesterday, there was about 20 boats. Uh, good Samaritans go out to help, you know, whatever they can do, assist. With cruise tourism growing in popularity year over year, the scrutiny was on the investigation and the biggest question, how could something like this happen? Investigators will be on scene between about five to seven days. We will not be determining the probable cause of the accident in that time frame. Reporter Allison Hurst joins me now. Thanks so much for being back on the pod. Happy to be here. So paint us a picture what it was like when you first got the call asking you to pack your bag and, and head to Alaska for this story that we already knew was going to be a really difficult story, already involved deaths, um, because we didn't know there were any Canadians involved at this point. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, all we knew was that there had been this float plane crash and had a connection to Vancouver because the cruise ship had left the port uh, the morning before, I believe, or that morning. And, and so I was actually out for dinner and, uh, my phone rings and it was our assignment editor, uh, Phil who called me and he just sort of said, Hey, do you want to go to Alaska without really any, any context to that? So I immediately said yes. And next thing I knew I was rushing home to get my passport so that they could book us on some flights to get us out there first thing in the morning. And I was throwing a bag together, realizing that of course, myself and Pete Klein, uh, were going to be leaving at about two o'clock in the morning Tuesday, which was really just like six hours from when I got the phone call. And I'm sure you're like me every time I've gotten the call to go out and they're like, oh, yeah, it should only be two days. You still got to pack like three or four days worth of clothes just because you never know how this is going to develop and how long you're going to have to stay up there. Exactly. Well, they had told us they booked us until Friday. So we I had a rough idea that maybe we might be there until Friday, but we were going on a one way ticket. So you never really know. But we would had a hotel booked uh, for three nights uh, for when we arrived. So I just started started throwing stuff into my bags. And of course, I'd never been to Alaska, so I really didn't know how cold it would still be, what the temperatures would be like, what the weather was like at this time of year. So I was quickly checking, you know, weather network, trying to figure out what I needed to pack, and and we were off, so. And so what did you find when you first got there? Because Pete's got his camera, you've got your, um, I'm sure, a backup battery for your iPhone because you're, you know, checking Twitter and checking NTSB. And so what was it like when you finally got on the ground in Alaska? We landed at about nine in the morning in Alaska, and uh, that's an hour behind Vancouver, uh, which was the bane of our existence the entire trip. So um, when we first touched down, we got our rental car. And in, in Ketchikan, you take a ferry across from the airport to the main part of town. And so when we were on the ferry, already we could see the Taquan Air sign. And so before I even had a chance to 
step foot on t- into Ketchikan, Pete was out shooting um, to get some shots, those first official shots of one of the airlines involved in the in the crash. So it was pretty much go, go, go from there. And we just sort of started working through a list of what we thought we needed, what we needed to check out. Ketchikan's kind of interesting. Everything is off of a main road. There's kind of this road that runs along the water and pretty much everything we needed was along that. So we just drove that road to get an, get an idea of where the hospital was, where was where were the aircraft, where was uh, did all of the cruise ships come in, and where were all the little restaurants and the tourist attractions, just to get a sense of the town. Because for a town like this, they are dependent on, on tourists. And when two planes collide midair full of tourists, I mean, I imagine that people there were scared. What's this going to mean for their livelihood? Are people going to stop coming there? Are they going to think it's, or, or maybe not, you know, stop going on cruises, but what does that mean kind of for the greater economy, for their friends, their uncle, whoever, who is involved with these extra excursions that happen as a result of, of this uh, cruise ship traffic? We heard a lot of that. I mean, even when we first arrived and we went to Taquan Air to speak to somebody there, I mean, he was in tears. This was, you know, such a tragedy for the community. And that sort of set the tone for then the entire rest of our trip, that we realized we were coming into a town of a little more than 8,000 people who depend on tourism, who for most of the year may or may not even live there, who come in and work in the restaurants and the local shops for cruise ship season. And so having these planes collide like this and such a massive attraction for when people arrive there was really hit hit the town hard and I think um, what really showed that was the day uh, that afternoon outside of the hospital at 12 o'clock there was a prayer vigil happened and I couldn't get over how quickly they organized to have dozens I would say maybe 100 150 people were there praying outside of the hospital for those people who were in the hospital you know getting treatment I mean it was incredible tears huge amount of emotion kids there families little little kids had come probably from school for recess over lunchtime older couples who just wanted to pay their respects I mean it was really moving so here you are in a really sensitive setting people are super emotional Uh, we know at this point that lives have been lost and I'm sure your phone was beeping nonstop with emails because it's not just, you know, when our reporters go out on a scene like this, it's not just CTV Vancouver that's expecting you to file for the five and six o'clock news, probably for the morning show. We've got News Channel. We've got the network demanding things. So the demands placed on you and Pete to service not just our station, which would have been a lot as it was, but everybody else, I imagine it could be quite overwhelming at times. It was. We had to really work hard with our team in Vancouver here. They were great. Uh, We had a live hit, of course, scheduled for the noon show as soon as we got there. And then we ended up having a live presser happening at the hospital. But News Channel had asked for for a live hit to piggyback off of that noon one. So we had to cancel that. And I, I did feel... Like I was constantly having to say, sorry, we're gathering. And and it's tough because you're the only two people on the ground for CTV. And for the first time in my experience, you're up against all of the networks, um, all of that, all of that. They're all there and they've got a massive number of people. I mean, NBC, they had two reporters, an audio uh, crew, a producer, and a photographer, and it was just me and Pete there trying to figure out the lay of the land. So the demands were high, you know, filing for national and local. This deadline was the same time, and so that that was stressful. But we did have a really good backing of people 
in Vancouver here and also in the national networks as well. And, and News Channel understood. I mean, we had to get the video. We had to get the interviews uh, to get the updates on how everyone was doing. So it was it was a hustle. And that's what makes it really hard because everybody wants to know what's happening right away. But then they also want to hear from the the tour operator. They want to hear from potentially the mayor. They want to hear from all sorts of officials. But when there's only two people there, one to ask questions and the other to do the technical, uh, the actual video gathering, there's only so much you can do. You can't be reporting at the same time that you're gathering. It's And I think that the viewers don't really understand that. They just see this polished thing at the end of the day or they see updates and they have no idea that you're probably looking at your clock waiting to figure figure out when can I get out of here to go to talk to some more people it was a lot I think one of the most interesting things for me was just how uh organized the pressers were and and the updates came so um that first day we had that live presser from the hospital from the lead medical official on our noon show which was pretty great I I can't remember a time of that happening here the day the day after a tragedy has struck a community like that so and then a couple of hours later started a two-hour presser where we heard from the NTSB the mayors some of the first responders the people who had uh, had uh, the good Samaritans who had gone the volunteer search and rescue I mean it was just a constant flow of people giving us up-to-the-date information about what had happened up until this point uh, and so that was great because everyone we needed came to one location and so uh, they were really good at getting the information out to us um, and then it was just all about kind of putting it together for a five and six o'clock shows. Well, so imagine trying to put, first of all, trying to put together the information from a two-hour presser into a minute-and-a-half, two-minute story. But um, just the organization that you mentioned, I have only on a couple occasions experienced American officials in a a disaster situation. It was the uh, mudslides in Oso, Washington that I'm thinking of that I was amazed at how organized they were as well. And it's just such a difference from Canadian officials. I mean, down there, I don't know if it's because there are more stations with more demands, and so their officials are more proactive. I don't know if it's a cultural thing that we don't have here in Canada that's a little bit different in the United States, but I just find them a lot more forthcoming. I mean, in in all sorts of uh, criminal situations, they give you mug shots. They give you all sorts of information that here you could not... We have cultural differences in terms of, you know, you can't shoot in a courthouse. You know, you don't get any video of trials and stuff like that. I get that. But even just the other officials... um, And I'm not going to call it sophistication, but I think it's just an openness that they have towards the media that we do not see here, uh, at least to that extent. I mean, oftentimes, you know, Transportation Safety Board, um, Bill Yearwood has been really excellent over the years, but, you know, he's often still waiting uh, to give us information on on plane crashes here. So it's just such a marked difference. Um, And I'm sure our viewers can see that as well in our coverage. It was striking. It was funny. The the second day we were there after we'd done the morning show, we were figuring out how we were going to get a boat to charter. And so we went back. We were just having a quick breakfast back at our hotel. And two tables over was the entire crew of the NTSB. And not only were they ta- discussing the day previous, they were figuring out what their plan of attack was for that day. And when they saw me, they recognized me from the presser. They came and said hello. They told me their plan for the day. They told us the likely timing of when they would have a presser that day. And then they went off. I mean, this was a, you know, a quick hello in a diner style breakfast spot, but they weren't afraid to come up and just share a little bit of their day. And I mean, Pete and I were both fairly stunned that the, they were so willing and so, I mean, I, I, you know, handing 
sharing sharing business cards kind of feel hello how are you do you have a good sleep okay what's going on what's the plan for the day I mean it was pretty it was pretty amazing to have that it's a very different experience than anything I've had here because I find usually here, uh, the communications people um, are sometimes cold, sometimes terrified, sometimes friendly, but they are often trying to keep us at arm's length, trying to give us as little information as humanly possible in, in a lot of circumstances. And it's often the people that are, um, they're not the rookies on the ground, but it is the people who are kind of in charge of that immediate area that will often help us out. I found that with the Coast Guard in the past. I found that with certain police agencies. I mean, fire departments are always fantastic. The battalion chief that you have there is always amazing, and they have a very much more open and forthcoming attitude. But it's just this sense of they don't feel we're the enemy. And I find that so many times here, um, and it's we're not antagonistic. I mean, these are people that we have to have long-term relationships with. It's not like we're you know being super antagonistic when we ask about information in a in a crisis situation. But there, you had a crisis situation where multiple people had died. They knew that Canadians, uh, that at least one Canadian had died, and that we would be interested in just that openness. I I, I just I find it fascinating. It was pretty great. I mean, I think part of it, too, was that they knew that this was a big story and that this impacted a lot of people and everyone needed information. And so I think that that made them all the more keen and interested in in getting the right information across and out there. Um, I will say the timing of the pressers wasn't exactly best, uh, but, you know, that's just our deadlines and that's just what we deal with. But that was certainly a little bit of a challenge, trying to meet deadlines for our shows when we were an hour behind and they were setting pressers for like 3 o'clock, 3.30, which is 4, 4.30 for us here, and we've got a show at five. So that was a little bit of a challenge for the crews out in the field. And I think, unfortunately, we were one of the, the, the two crew or the three crews rather from the, from the Vancouver area. were all feeling the, the squeeze on that front for sure. So it just so happened that as you were the one on the ground trying to figure out what happened uh, at the site, as soon as we got the list of names, I was assigned uh, because we saw that one of the names was from Richmond. And so uh, we kick into high gear and it's like, okay, Penny, you're the one that has to see what you can find out about this woman. And she's got the same last name as somebody else. Well, it turns out that they were a husband and wife and they were living in Port Coquitlam, which is a Vancouver suburb for people listening um, outside of our uh, immediate area here. And so then you try to find their friend and you try to find people who knew them and it's very sensitive because this is a shocking uh, tragic circumstance that these people have have died in and so there's also an aspect of friends who do want to memorialize them and say nice things about them which which is lovely they want to say good things about their friends they also don't want to upset the victims families and so it's this delicate dance where you're saying hey like I'd like to talk to you instead of trying to knock on the door of the mother or anything else so I ended up that day getting the, it wasn't the day after the crash, it was the day after that, I'm um, getting a whole bunch of information, but nobody wanted to talk on camera. So here I am, and I had to put together a story um, of this lovely couple involved in the tech scene, and they're just this, the, the Wilkes, they're just these lovely people, um, and trying to put together a TV story with no clips, and, you know, just like with these photos, I got sent by friends and all the rest of it. Uh, and that came after the story that you did the the day, the second day that you were there, where you had this amazing video of what it actually took to get the aircraft out of the water for the investigation and I just marvel at Pete's skill in in shooting on a boat to get that video that that was tremendous 
He was incredible the whole time. I mean, he was my steady rock throughout the entire thing. But when we, that morning, so that was right after we talked to the NTSB at breakfast, we both knew we had to get out on the water. So we ended up calling a couple of people and we had Captain William or Captain Willie, as we called him. He was amazing. And he picked, he said, yeah, I can pick you up in 10 minutes. So Pete and I went and met him at one of the berths where the cruise ships come in, hopped on the boat with him, beautiful boat my goodness even had a bathroom on board so we were set for like we could stay out there forever and it was about a 40 minute ride fairly choppy we shot a quick uh look live uh which you know is a for our noon show um so that they would have something to go to air with because we were going into an area without service so we were heading off into one of some of these different sort of uh, inlets the George Inlet is where where the crash happened so we took off for that and uh I mean it, it it was it was quite an actually quite an interesting situation. We we come across the uh, barge and the tow boats that were doing all of the hand, the lifting. There were divers in the water securing the wreckage, and they were about to lift it. They didn't want us there. Our we we maybe we got a little too close at first, so we backed off. But then they told us, "Well, we're not going to pull up the wreckage with you here." So we had to make a judgment call at that point, and um, we ended up kind of driving around a little island nearby looking for the other planks. Of course, there were two of them on either side of the inlet. And then when we came back around, they were starting to lift the wreckage. And, I mean, it was amazing. It was choppy. It was wavy. And Pete was out there on the back of the boat in the rain till it stopped, shooting and getting that amazing video of the of the crash, the plane being lifted out. And, you know, it was it was heart-wrenching in a way to watch that because you knew that was a plane that had all these people on it and how amazing that so many survived when you saw the plane that was the plane that had the 10 passengers the otter and when we saw the plane I think we were all a little stunned that people had walked away I mean one one man was discharged from the hospital the day after the crash so that was quite shocking. Um, and I think that's what officials there, I can understand their sensitivity. We have never shown a dead body as the, uh, uh, as the result of a crash. Um, it, it is against our, our policy. It's against our journalistic standards. We're, we're not going to do that. Again, I think it may be a cultural difference compared to how things are in the U.S. Well, where they will show a lot more things than we will. So I can understand them being really sensitive to that. But again, I think this is the power of television. And until you see what they had pulled out and the condition that it's in there's no way you hear mid-air crash and in your mind you're like oh that sounds bad and you know that it's bad but until you see it with your eyes i think it's just a human thing and that's again the power of video and the power of tv news that until you see that it just hits you in the gut it was it was remarkable and um you know we floated in the water uh i don't know maybe 500 meters away and pete just captured the entire moment and um you know captain willie and i just sort of sat there and watched kind of in awe of of you know the the plane coming out of the water um so we were there for probably 45 minutes and then we we hightailed it back to some service to feed it in for our noon show and then went back in again and when we went back there were two other boats with other media there that the otter had then been secured onto the barge and covered with a tarp so um it was you know contained um but then we saw the floats or the pontoons of the other of the other float plane um and that's where the other two boats were so we went over and that one I mean that was you know that was kind of had a 
ominous feeling. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but just sort of this feeling of seeing these two pontoons kind of floating upside down in the water, just sort of a sadness to it as well. It was really close to a shoreline right across the inlet from the two, and uh, we we went to that one next. And So this is not your average assignment. I mean, we don't go on overnight assignments so much anymore, but just the sheer emotion, the magnitude of what you saw there. Um, how how did you feel when you came back home? I mean, you still look a little bit tired. I mean, it, it's it's one of those stories that, I mean, we were all just watching, you know, captivated by everything that you were sending in. But for yourself, how did you feel when you came back? Uh, definitely tired. I think I still am. It was, um, it was a very busy, what, ended up only being two days, I guess, but it felt like a week um, of, of coverage. I mean, the first day was a 20-hour day. The second one was, I don't know, 16, 17-hour day of just go, go, go. The day I got home, um, I had I had took some time to reflect on, on just the gravity of it, of knowing that, you know, all, that this death and destruction had happened, that this poor little town had gone through something so horrible that they depend on on tourism they depend on uh you know people continuing to come and wanting to tour around such a beautiful part of the world and so I think that kind of all hit me the next the last couple days and I must admit it still is you know it still was it was kind of shocking and then of course on Monday to read that there had been another float plane crash a week after that one you know that that just sort of hits you in the gut a little bit. I can picture the people. I can picture the the town, the the impact, the reaction of losing another local person. I mean, when when uh, Randy Sullivan's name was released, the pilot who was killed. I mean, I, you're hearing these stories about how he coached basketball, about how he, he was so involved in the community. And when you're in a community that size, if you live there, you do wear a whole bunch of different hats. And so everyone knows you. And I just, I can imagine what they then went through all over again a week later. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about this and for um, sharing something that just sounds like an emotionally, mentally, physically exhausting experience, but that I'm, I'm really glad that you went so that you could bring that and convey that to our viewers, because otherwise I don't think there was any way that people would have connected with the story in the way that they did. No, thanks. I'm proud of the work we did. I think we got the right tone across and... You know, we help tell a story that impacts a lot of people. Ten days after the crash, the preliminary report from the NTSB didn't find cause, but did note the skies were clear that day. It cited an interview with a surviving pilot who said his limited instruments didn't reveal any other aircraft, and he only saw a flash out of the corner of his eye a moment before impact, and that the seaplane went from 3,700 feet to the water's surface within five seconds. The full report is expected to take 12 to 24 months. Thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV, and I hope you'll check out my colleague Binder Sudgeon's Lady at the Ledge podcast combining politics, current events, and Binder's smart and sassy take on the big issues of the week. Is there a topic you'd like me to cover on a future episode of this podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca, and if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Duffles.